Good morning. Wow, what an amazing time of worship we just had. Did you guys have that? Uh, it's just like, man, I, had, I can't think too deeply about some of these songs. It just makes me want to cry. Just overwhelming. It overwhelms me. I wouldn't have been able to get through the sermon here this morning if I hadn't just said, okay, I've got to stop thinking about that right now. But it's just amazing. Good to have you with us this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 21. This is our freedom teaching series for freedom. Christ has set us free. That's from uh, Galatians 5.1. That's the subtitle of this series. A man who is desperate for work applies to a zoo that he's heard has some openings. Well, it's a little unusual, but I, I do have something, said the zoo director. Our gorilla died some time ago, and we haven't had the money to replace him. If you're willing to wear a monkey suit and impersonate an ape, you've got the job. <clears throat> Didn't feel terribly authentic, but the man figured a job's a job, so I signed on. And after a few awkward days, he began to get into the spirit of the thing, and soon he became one of the zoo's prime attractions. One morning, he was swinging from one vine to the next with a little too much animation and inadvertently swung himself right over the wall into the cage next to his, which was occupied by an enormous African lion. The man could feel the lion's hot breath on his face. He knew he was a goner. Reflexively, he began screaming for help when suddenly the lion whispered urgently to him, shut up, you idiot, or we'll be both out of a job. <laughs> so, in our study here this weekend is that we're going to uh, have... We're gonna, we have one of the most awkward, one of the most awkward moments in church history. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, big A Apostle, encountered the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Savior, and then sent uh, Paul and Peter. Paul confronts Peter, big A Apostle, over his hypocrisy, his, his game playing. And, and he actually cuts to the chase. He doesn't actually call it hypocrisy, though we'll see it in the text. And he also confronts him over his racism. But he says something else. He cuts right to the chase and gets to the root of the issue. And the root of the issue is this. It is one thing to know what the gospel is, but it's altogether another to know how the gospel works, applying it to every area of our lives. Being able to articulate the gospel with accuracy is one thing. It's pretty important. A lot of people don't even know the gospel, can't articulate it. But it's one thing to be able to accurately articulate the gospel, but having its truth captivate your heart and applying that truth to every part of your life, that's altogether something different. And that's the most important thing about the gospel. See, the gospel is more than our ticket to heaven. It is an entirely new basis and source for how we live out every detail of our lives. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we uh, dive into our notes and unpack this text, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray once again. We need God's help for greater understanding of this text. Father, we are delighted to be here today. We are overwhelmed with your presence here we thank you for the freedom we have in the gospel. Our past sins are forgiven. Our present problems can be overcome because of your empowering presence in our lives. And our future is secure 
Not because of our good works or record, but because of Christ, through his sacrificial love for us. Show us wonderful things from your words through the illuminating work of your Holy Spirit, teaching us, teaching us how to apply the truth of the gospel to every detail of our lives, bringing to us greater and greater freedom for your glory, our joy, in Jesus' name, and everyone said... Amen. Take a look at this text. So we've got starting in verse 11, chapter 2 of Galatians, but when Cephas came to Antioch. Stop there just for a minute. Now let me kind of bring you up to speed here. First chapter, the apostle Paul is really defending his apostolic credibility. There was these false teachers that infiltrated these churches that he had planted in Galatia, and they were teaching a false gospel. And then they begin to undermine Paul's credibility, and so he, he defends his apostolic credibility there in the first chapter, and then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he receives his apostolic commendation from the other apostles, Peter, Peter James, and John, and remember, capital A, apostle, these are guys that encountered the resurrected Savior and King, that's where most of the New Testament is written by primarily the Apostle Paul, two-thirds of it, and so this is our epistemological authority. Why do we believe what we believe? Right here. We come back to the Bible. The Bible here, the New Testament, was written by these guys that encountered the resurrected Savior and Lord. And so this is really an awkward moment because Paul, first of all, went to Jerusalem to get his commendation. And now we see his apostolic confidence as he confronts Peter. As he confronts the apostle Peter, listen to what it says. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Awkward. That's uncomfortable. Wait a minute, you saw Jesus, you encountered Jesus, and he encountered Jesus too, and you're confronting him in front of all the rest of us? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Notice what it says in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, supposedly, actually when you read Acts 15, they didn't actually come from James. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Circumcision party is this group of false teachers who are teaching a false gospel message. See, uh, they were teaching Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus ceremonial laws, Jewish laws, equals salvation. The apostle Paul, the other apostles were teaching, no, 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 that's that's not the gospel message. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel message. And so, for some reason, Peter is being intimidated. Notice the word fearing, fearing the circumcision party. So that's what's driving it is his fear. And by the way, this gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? Because here's a guy that had encountered the resurrected Savior, and yet he's still struggling getting the gospel deep within his heart and living it out in all the specific areas of his life, and this would be one of those. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So so the point here is that it is possible for for Christians to live lives of, as as we see with Peter, and even others are being led astray by Peter's uh, response to these false teachers out of fear. And so it is possible for Christians to live lives of, of hollowness, phoniness, and inauthenticity. In other words, you can have a said faith, but it not be real to your heart. 
See, the gospel can be clear to the mind, but not real to the heart. That's what's happening here with Peter. It can happen to all of us. And that's why it's important to be able to take the gospel message and begin to work it into the specifics of every detail of your life. In fact, he gives us really the root issue. Though he's, uh, he's guilty of racism and, and hypocrisy, but he, he hits the nail on the head right here, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's the big idea. In step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, so you're a Jew, but you're living like a Gentile, you're not abiding by all the ceremonial laws, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, that's hypocrisy, that's inconsistent. Now, in this verse is, is the root of all, all of our issues. All of your issues, all of my issues are rooted right here. Whether it be your marriage, your finances, or issues on the job, or whatever it is, our inability to overcome our hurts, habits, and hang-ups is right here. It's a failure to, to live in step with the truth of the gospel. We're not talking about just surviving life. We're talking, if we live in step with the truth of the gospel, we're gonna, we're gonna thrive. It's about us thriving in life. Now he goes on and he gives us a little more insight here, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he's gonna bring an argument of what he's saying here. And he says, yet we know that a person is not justified. Now let's just see how many times he uses the word justified and also how, he, how many times he talks about belief. That we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified, there it is again, by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There's not anything that you can add to your faith to make you more acceptable to God or take away from it. It all comes as a gift from God through Jesus Christ. He says it right here, it's by faith. Put our faith in Jesus, we have everything we need. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the point here. Now, verse 17, he, it's a little bit harder to understand as you work through 17, 18. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? In other words, okay, if I'm justified by Christ, I'm in right standing with God through Jesus Christ and I continue to sin, does that mean that Christ, you know, uh, is Christ the cause of that? Certainly not. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. We'll come back to that and talk about that. <clears throat> Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. What is he saying? I recognize that I, I couldn't live by the law, and so I died to the law as a means of my justification before God. So that, so forth through the law, I died to the law, so that <clears throat> I might live to God. I have been, oh, this is a great verse. This is one of those verses, besides, uh, I thought verse, uh, verse four, uh, 14 and 16 and 15, 16, 17 and 18 and 19, just underline them all, okay? <laughs> but actually 14 and, and 16 are really good underlined verses, and 20 is the one that I memorized years ago. It's a powerful verse. So he's really kind of declaring what this is all about. I have been crucified with Christ. Well, he's talking about, it's a, 
um, theological idea. It's called substitutionary atonement. So when we get baptized, that's what we're identifying with, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. Atonement, at one moment, at one moment. We have been at one with God. We've been brought at one with God through the death of Jesus Christ. I'm identifying with that. It's substitutionary. He took my place on the cross. I receive all of his blessing. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he, he explains what that means. That's a supernatural, pow a powerful life. I mean... Uh, I've, it's Romans 8.11. If the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will make alive your mortal body. In other words, oh my goodness, look at it. If you have an understanding of what he's done, now that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, not only has he forgiven you of all your sins, but he empowers you with his presence. That's the idea. He says, but I know it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he kind of talks about, well, so how, does, how do we live that out in everyday life? <clears throat> and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What am I motivated by? He loved me. He gave himself for me. Now, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So let's talk about this. So first of all, look at, uh, take a look at your notes. What does it mean, this is the big idea, what does it mean to be in step with the truth of the gospel? And it's, it's actually, it's taking this, that which is clear to the mind, making it real to the heart. The word there, in step, literally, the Greek is orthopedio, where we get our word orthopedics. You guys familiar with that word, orthopedics? Orthopedics means straight walking. In other words, live a life consistent with the gospel. So what we see with Peter and the others, they're not living a life that would be consistent with the gospel. And so what does that mean? What does it mean to be in step with the truth of the gospel? How do we make that which is clear to the mind, real to the heart. Well, here's the first uh, fill in the blank on your notes. The gospel is the good news of what God has done to make us right with him. <clears throat> so the gospel is not good advice of what we must do to be right with God, but it is good news of what God has done to make us right with him. I, I don't know that that ever really sinks into us. From time to time, I, you know, I, I begin to see it, but it's been, it's been done. It's been done for you. Everything that needs to be done has been done. You have access into the throne room of God. You have a relationship with God. That's the point. It's a pretty amazing truth. And uh, verse 16, let me reread that. Keep your Bibles open because we'll keep coming back to these verses. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Did you notice how many times in that verse, how many times in that verse do we have the word justified? Three times. Three times, and then in verse 17, we've got it again. So he's trying to make a point here, big point. And then how many times does he really talk about faith or belief? Three times. So yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So here's the human dilemma, whether you realize this or not. God is holy. 
and man is sinful and therefore alienated from God. In fact, all human problems are ultimately symptoms and our alienation from God is the cause. All of the pain, suffering, sin, problems on this planet Earth is symptomatic of our alienation from God. So what's, what's the solution? Justification. Justification. He, and, and it comes to us. How does it come to us? How do we get justification? Through Christ, yeah. Putting our faith in Jesus. Putting our faith in Jesus. He said that three times in that verse. So how can we be reconciled? Justification. Justification means what? Anybody? Just as if I never sinned, just as if I lived the perfect life. So Jesus lived the perfect life, uh, lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, and so that is on my account. It's my record now, and my record was placed on him on the cross, and so I'm declared guilty, or I'm declared not guilty, and I'm declared not guilty, and much more than that. I'm brought into his family as his child, and I'm empowered with his presence, okay? So turn to the folks next to you. This ought to be relatively easy, but uh, I'll make you kind of work through this a little bit. What is the opposite of being justified? What is the opposite of being justified? Real quick, discuss it with the folks sitting around you. So if justification is being declared not guilty, the opposite of justification, was anybody thinking condemnation? Condemnation? You guys get that? Yeah, condemnation, which means to be declared guilty. Oh, and check this out. That's why I love Romans uh, 8.1. There is therefore now no. Oh, by the way, it says no, not ever. No, not ever. Do you hear what it's saying? So there is therefore now no. Yeah, but I, I kind of messed up yesterday. Yeah, of course you did. And, uh, and you did, and you're going to do it today. And not because you're purposely wanting, or maybe it is purposely, but at the same time, as he begins to get a hold of your heart, you're going to want to mess up less and less, and he's going to bring your life more and more in line with the gospel because that is a great way to live. It, it's the best way to live. There's no other way to live than to live in line with the gospel, in step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you're going to mess up, but that's why it's by God's grace. There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. It's out of that, that completeness that we have in him, then that's what begins to transform our hearts and our lives. So faith, we put our faith in him to receive that. Faith is more than an agreement with facts in the head. It's an appetite for God in the heart that, is, that exceeds all other appetites. You love Jesus. You want more of Jesus. You are passionate about Jesus because of what he's done for you. He rescued you. He's given you fullness of life. He's given you a life unlike you've ever experienced before. That's the Christian life. And uh, joy is the mark of the justified. I can tell when, when I'm beginning to live in the reality of it and I'm beginning to see others that live in the reality of it, they have a joy, a buoyancy in their life that nothing in this world, there's no person, thing, or circumstance that can push them down or keep them down. Yeah, it might push them down, but it won't keep them down because the joy of being justified, of having peace with God, gives us a buoyancy in our life that keeps us going, that gives us, uh, 
It, it, it gives us a sense of purpose and direction and, and acceptance and security and all that we need in him. Now, what's interesting about this is that no one is so good they don't need the grace of, of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. That's the point of that. So the gospel is the good news of what God has done to make us right with him. Here's the next point. Christian living is a continual realignment process, realignment process, one of bringing every thing in step with the truth of the gospel. And this is what Paul is doing with Peter in verse 14. And by the way, you need to have people in your life. That's why we do life groups. What? So I'm supposed to go to a group so people can boss me around and tell me to get back in line with the gospel? Yeah. That's exactly it. I love it that I've got people in my life that say, hey, dude, your thinking is a little scrambled right now. That's not even close to what the gospel preaches. You're living way outside that right now, and I need people that will say that to me. They will speak the truth in love. I've got the, the relationship with them, and a love relationship, and I know that they love me, so they're going to speak truth to me. And uh, so we need that, just as, as Peter and the group needed Paul. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What is he saying here? Just because someone who is justified by faith sins doesn't mean that God promotes sin. That's the idea. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is that? Well, here's what it means. If someone who professes faith in Christ keeps on with the same sinful lifestyle, rebuilding the sinfulness that Christ died to destroy the penalty for, making no effort to change, then it proves this person never grasped the gospel, but was just looking for an excuse to live in disobedience to God. That's the point here. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be sinless, but you will sin less over time. By the way, if you've been walking with Jesus as long as I have, if you've been walking with Jesus for 5, 10, 15 years, my goodness sakes, there should be a difference in your life. There should be a major difference in your life if, you, if your relationship is authentic. Otherwise, you're falling prey to hollowness, phoniness, inauthenticity. You have a set faith. You don't have a real faith. So you need to get back in line with the gospel, begin to experience all that he has provided for you so that you can experience the fullness of life that he came to give us. Here's the next point on your notes. We are to think out its implications in every area of our lives and seek to bring our thinking, feeling, behaving in step. And so when I'm, as I'm working through the issues, if I find myself overreacting to what people said or to a particular circumstance, I've got to come back and say, wait, 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 wait. What, what would my life look like? What would I be thinking? What would I be feeling? How would I be responding to this if I really knew? I love that one song. I loved all those songs. But I love that one where we're talking about if God is for you, who can be against you? Whew, the way that thing builds and you're just like, man, I'm ready to take on the world at the end of that song. I mean, if God is for you, who can be against you? So here's the, here's the question. So what would I be thinking, feeling, and behaving like if I really believed that in response to the junk that's going on in my life? Anybody have some junk going on in their life? Show of hands. Yeah, 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 listen. So, so this is what you need to be thinking. So, okay, you've taken some hits. You, you got some hurts. You're working through some habits, whatever it might be. And so you've got to come back to the gospel and say, okay, if I really believe this, if I really believe that God is for me and not against me, what will that look like in my life? It's going to make a difference. And in fact, you're trying to get it from your head to your heart. And so you're asking God, God, 
make this logic on fire in my heart. Let me know the reality of your presence, that you're empowering presence to enable me to be what you want me to be, to do what you want me to do. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're needing so desperately. Look at verses 19, and then we'll look at verse 20. Let's, let's kind of walk through these. So verse 19, for, for through the law, I died to the law. In other words, the, the law showed me that I could never make myself acceptable to God through it. The law's like a mirror. How many, like me, the older you get, uh, the less you like looking into the mirror? I just do not like the law, the second law of thermodynamics. I just do not like that law where everything's just kind of disintegrating and I see myself disintegrating right before my eyes as I look into the mirror. It's like, oh my goodness. You're looking pathetic. And, and so that's just, but, but the mirror can't fix me. If I stood in the, I could stand in front of the mirror all day long. It's not going to be able to change me. But I've got to do something about it. So the law can't fix you. It just reveals to you what's going on in your life. How many have ever had a broken bone? Broken bone? And so what did you do? You just wrapped some duct tape around it and went on, huh? You didn't? No, you probably went to the ER and they took an x-ray. And that x-ray machine kind of revealed, yep, it's broken. But did, let me ask you this, did the x-ray machine fix your broken bone? No, the law can't fix you. The law reveals what's broken. The law is diagnostic. Guess who the cure is? That's right. Jesus Christ, he died for us. So we run into his arms. We look at the law, we look at God's word, we go, oh, I'm broken. Yep, yeah, you are, you need Jesus. Yep, I sure do. I'm gonna run back into his arms. That's the idea, that's the idea. So for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I used to obey to get from God, now I obey to please and honor him. Look at verse 20. Let's unpack this one real quick. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Substitutionary atonement. God sees Christ's beauty and perfection when he sees me because I put my faith in Jesus. God treats me just as if I died on the cross and paid for every last sin. That's what it means. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. God's presence empowers me to be and do what he wants me to be and do for his glory and my joy. And then, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So how do I live this out? So this is, I mean, he's, he's showing us how to live it out, how to live in line or in step with the gospel. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So faith is not a feeling, a force, or a formula. It is fellowship with God. It's intimacy with God. It's knowing God. It's walking with him. It's experiencing him in your life. So by faith in the Son of God who loved me, what motivates this? Oh my goodness, I've never been more loved. He loved me and gave himself for me. So I am actively living in step with the truth of the gospel that I am completely loved as I make my home in his heart. I make my home in his love each and every day, and then out of that is the fruitfulness that I want to experience for my life. Now, there are two thieves of the gospel. Since Paul speaks of being in step or in line with the gospel, we can extend the metaphor by saying that gospel transformation occurs when we keep from walking off step or out of line, either to the right or to the left. You'll notice in verse 21, he says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. 
So what happens? I can nullify the grace of God? Yeah, and it keeps me from experiencing the joy and the power of the gospel. And there's two ways that we do this. And we all fall prey to this. So if you're not experiencing the truth or the, or the joy and the power of the gospel, it's because you've fallen prey to one of these two things. You've either gone moved to the left or to the right of the gospel. Uh, Tertullian, our church father, put it this way, just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so this doctrine of justification is ever crucified between two opposite errors. And so there's two ways that we can, uh, we try to be our own Savior and Lord. It's either by keeping all the rules or by breaking all the rules. Let me walk you through this. The first thief is religion. That's by trying to keep all the rules. And if you read in the story of the prodigal sons, oftentimes it's referred to as the prodigal son, but both sons are prodigal, but it's actually more about the prodigal father. Prodigal means extravagant. The father's pretty extravagant in the story. It's 15th chapter of Luke. But both of these sons are represented here. And uh, the elder brother is this one, religion, morality, or moralism, legalism. It stresses truth without grace. Remember what truth without grace is? This is surgery without anesthesia. You guys remember that? Okay, so have, have you ever had anybody come up and try to speak truth to you, but you weren't really that close to them, you didn't have much of a relationship, and they came and it, it hurt. It, it didn't carry the, you know... It didn't really motivate you to want to change because, hey, I don't have much of a relationship with you and you came after me pretty hard there. That's a little bit of that legalism. And that's what's going on here. And basically what religion says is I must obey to be accepted by God. What happens when we do that is that this will lead either to superiority because you think you've lived up to the standards, therefore God owes you. This creates, a, and I've seen a lot of Christians defect from the faith over this one. Hey, I went to church, I read my Bible, I prayed, and look at all, of, all that happened in my life. So what are you saying? You're saying that somehow God owes you? See, if you understood what you had in the gospel, you wouldn't be talking like that. If you understood God doesn't owe you anything, and if you really understood what you had in him, that as I said last weekend, if you understood that you had peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and you, you begin to live in the reality of the peace, even if all hell broke loose in your life from this point on, that would be enough. His grace is sufficient. Listen to me. See, and that's what the enemy tries to get us off, off our game, off the gospel. But see, that's very easy. That's what we fall prey to in this religion. And so God owes us, or inferiority, because you can't live up to the standards, therefore you deserve to be punished. You're mired in guilt and shame. The younger brother is to break all the rules. It's because you think you know better than, than God. You're smarter than God, and God's unloving, and you can think you can actually discover life apart from him. So this is irreligion, hedonism, license, stresses grace without truth. This is anesthesia without surgery. There's churches in the valley, there's churches throughout our nation that teach a, a, cheap, a cheap grace. That it's all love. God just loves everybody. Very little truth, if any. And it, and it doesn't actually bring change. And it doesn't really help people to deal with the issues of their life. I'm accepted by God, therefore I don't have to obey. It doesn't matter what I do. And this can lead to either superiority because you are so open-minded and accepting unlike religious people or inferiority because you are still bound up in your sin because you don't have enough of the truth to bring to set you free in the context of his amazing grace. But here's the gospel. 
The gospel in contrast to these other two, it's not necessarily in, in you know, half of each. It's actually something altogether different from both of these. The gospel stresses truth and grace. I am accepted by God's grace through faith in Christ. Therefore, I obey. When I understand what I have in him, oh my goodness, I want to live my life for his glory and for his honor. And, and you've heard this. You could probably quote it. Uh, by now, but I am so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. This eliminates superiority, pride. But he loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. That eliminates inferiority. John 1, 14, it says, and the word became flesh. Who's the word? Yes, Jesus, it's Christ. And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of, what was he full of? Grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth. First John 1, 7 through 9. I think I've got that on your notes. Take a look at your notes real quick. Do I have that on your notes? Okay, see, you guys already put your notes away, didn't you? Okay, make sure. Keep them out. Keep them out because we've got to walk through. Okay, you're, you're on it, aren't you? So keep them out because we've got to work through some case studies here. You've got to get these down. So 1 John 1, 7 through 9. I love it. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and God's Son cleanses us from all sin. And why would he say that? If we're walking in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is that going to do? It's going to expose sin. So therefore, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. If we claim to be without sin, we do what? We lie. We deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I mean, just accept the fact that there, there is a capacity within you to continue to sin. You've got to be okay with that. But there's a greater capacity in the gospel for your salvation. So there's no sin that you've committed or sin that's been committed against you that is a match for God's grace. So I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. I was so sinful, he had to die for me. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. Oh, that should ravish our hearts the more we reflect on that and think about that. The British pastor, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once asked his congregation what they would do if while they were away from home one day, a friend who was at their home visiting paid an overdue bill for them. Would anybody like to have a friend pay your bills for you? How about all of your bills? Yeah, that's not a bad idea. And they, he, they responded, it depends on how much the bill was for. And Lloyd-Jones said, if it were, were small, unpaid postage on a letter, you'd pat them on the back and say, thanks. But if the IRS had finally caught up to you after 10 years of unpaid taxes and had come to take you to jail and your friend paid off your entire debt, you would not pat them on the back and say, thanks you would fall at their feet and say, command me. Even more so will that be true in the gospel. You're not going to just pat Jesus on the head and say, thanks. You're going to fall at his feet and say, command me. You see, in the end, it's the joy and the wonder of the gospel that will change you permanently. Only an experience of God's amazing grace in the context of our sinfulness. That's why that song, the last song we sang was so wonderful. Oh, I need you, how I need you. See, when you begin to come to terms with reality, you are desperate for him. Now, there's two groups of people on this planet. Are those that are desperate for him and know it, and those who are desperate for him and don't know it. 
We all are desperate for him whether we realize it or not. And our, only our experience of God's amazing grace in the context of our sinfulness will sufficiently transform our hearts. Now let's look at some case studies. Let's knock these out real quick. Here's how this works out in our life as we begin to live our lives consistent. And this is just a short list. I mean, you gotta take it and make it specific to your life. But here's the first one, since this goes along with the text, race and culture. Religion says moralists idolize their race and culture is supreme. It's a means of works righteousness. It is what Paul is saying to Peter, basically. Paul is saying to Peter, hey, how can you have fellowship on the basis of race and culture? That's what he's doing in verse 14. Now, he doesn't call him a racist. He doesn't say, hey, you're being hypocritical. He doesn't have to do that. He's just saying, you're not living in, you're not living in line with the gospel. In step with the gospel. Peter, it's, it's as if some races or cultures are more spiritual than others. That's what you're saying and how you're behaving. Irreligion does this. Liberalists relativize all races and cultures, making no distinction between good and evil within those cultures. And they motivate by guilt. If you were open-minded and inclusive as we are, this world would be a much better place. That's oftentimes what I hear from hyper-liberal people with that. It's, it's really a, a form of, of guilt or shame, or fear. In fact, what's interesting is that Peter's racism was rooted in his fear, verse 12. So you don't use fear to get him back out of racism. And oftentimes, this is what I find what people do, is people are motivated, we try to motivate people to be moral or virtuous out of the very thing that made them immoral and, and un, in, unvirtuous. I guess that's how, how it goes. But, uh, but you don't use, because fear and pride can restrain the heart but only love really transforms the heart. So you can be motivated by, out of fear and pride to do the right things, but it's not gonna last in the long run, and that's why it comes down to the gospel. Here's the gospel. The gospel did, God, in, in the gospel, God didn't have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture, verse 15. Though you were good and devout, your race and culture had nothing to do with it, verse 16. Racism is rooted in a failure to believe in the grace of God, in God's unmerited favor. Paul is saying, Peter, you don't need approval from these men. You've already got Christ approval. That's the point. That's the point. Here's the next one, discouragement and depression. You guys still with me? Okay, stay, stay here. Stay here. Not you. You got to go to work, don't you? Don't anybody else get up and leave. Because we will embarrass you. Go ahead and lock the doors. Bring out the Kool-Aid. Oh, I should have said that, huh? Oh, bring out the coffee? Okay, that's better. We're almost finished. Discouragement and depression. Assuming no physiological basis, religion says, you're breaking the rules, so repent, work on your behavior. Oh, you're depressed? Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? You going to church? Are you rebuking the devil? That's religion. And, and some of those things can certainly help, but you get around religious people and you're depressed, you're gonna get beat up. And it's much deeper than that because you can be doing all those things and still be depressed. Does that make sense? You can be doing all the right things and still be depressed. You gotta get, there's some root issues here. Irreligion says, oh, you must, you must need to, you just need to love and accept yourself, work on your emotions. So those are those two extremes. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says something has become more important than God to you and it is collapsing. 
See, inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression is a collapsing counterfeit God. It's, it's either being threatened, blocked, or lost. That's why there's this major difference between sorrow and despair. You've heard me teach this before. But sorrow, yes, we all have sorrow. We all have to grieve. We go through difficulties. Sorrow is... is is a threatened or a losing a good thing, but despair, despair is losing an ultimate thing. That's why it says in, in Psalm 16, 4, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's why the, uh, the psalmist in 42, 5 is saying, why are you downcast, O my soul? 42.5 of Psalm, why are you downcast on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. What is he doing? He's trying to live in step with the gospel. He's working it deep within his heart. He's acknowledging the fact that he's depressed and he's saying, oh, I need you. I need you, God. Help me. Help me. I'm crying out to you for help. And he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You hear the hope in there? Yes, yes. He's going to get me back on track. Let's talk self-control, self-control religion. Control your passions out of fear of punishment, volition-based approach, or will-based approach. Try harder. Irreligion is express yourself. Find out what is right for you. Emotion-based approach. Follow your heart. That's our culture. That's our culture. Follow your heart. Here's the gospel. The power of sin's promise. I love this. The power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. Does sin give us a promise? Absolutely. That's why people sin. People don't sin out of duty. We sin because it offers a promise of happiness. We think we're going to be happier by pursuing our sin. But the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. You see? That's why it tells us, and I put the verse there, Titus 2, 11 through 12, for the grace of God trains us to renounce worldly passions and live self-controlled lives. That's why I like Thomas Chalmers, an old dead theologian. This is what he said. He said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new affection. That's good stuff. That's why David, when he prays his repentant prayer after his adultery and, and murder and the number of things that he did, as he's praying in Psalm 51, Verse 12, he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. It wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation. It was that he lost the joy of his salvation, therefore he sinned. Because sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. See, that's the gospel. We get to the root of it. And then love and relationships. It's all about rules and roles without true intimacy. That's religion. Irreligion, love is a feeling that you unpredictably fall in and out of. Here's the gospel. You don't fall into love. You commit to it. Love is saying, I will be there no matter what. Love is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. This is what love says. I accept you as you are. I believe you're valuable. I care when you hurt. I desire what is best for you. I erase all wrongs. Now, why in the world would anybody love like that? Because that's how Jesus loves us. That's how he loves you and I. Now, how do we live more in step with the gospel? What's, what's the key to all of this? How do we live more, less and less like religious or irreligious, but more right there, smack dab, in the sweet spot of the gospel? Grit your teeth and try harder this next week. No. No, in fact, Jesus summed it all up by saying, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I want to do that. That's exactly what I want to do, but how do I do that? We love him because of what? 
He first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. Listen to me, here's the key. Here's the key to greater fruitfulness. Here's the key to living smack dab in the gospel. It's not by trying harder, gritting your teeth, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, any of those things. It's based on his love. We are able to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves because he first loved us. His love is preemptive. Love for God grows out of an experience of his love for us. Listen to me. Everybody look up here. I'm almost finished. You got to get this. His love is the love you have been looking for your whole life. No one will ever, 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 ever love you more. No one has ever, 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 ever loved you more. And when you begin to make your home in his love, John 15, abide, dwell in him, feeling it, saturated by it, reflecting on it, standing in awe of it, spiritual fruit begins to grow naturally. That's what Psalm 103 is about. He said, bless the Lord, all my soul, and all those within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He's trying to get back in step with the gospel. Now listen to me. In two weeks, a week from this coming Wednesday night, we're going to do a linger, and I'm going to teach you in that linger night how to meditate on God's word and to take uh, that which is clear to the mind and make it real to the heart. So I want you to come, bring your Bible, and bring a notepad. In our ADD world, attention deficit disorder spiritually, we just kind of skim the surface, and none of us know how to sit and meditate and reflect and enjoy God's. When was the last time you were overwhelmed by his love? I hope this morning I was with that worship set. Oh my goodness. But man, that should be going on regularly in your life. I'm going to teach you how to do that. It's, uh, I've got the date here. It's Wednesday, October the 7th. It'll be right in here, 6.30 to 8 o'clock. Bring your Bibles, bring a notepad, and we're going to do that. It's called meditation, meditating on God's word. It's, it's taking that which is clear to the mind, making it real to our hearts. Let's pray. Father God, Wow, what an amazing morning this has been. What a great day to, to enjoy you, to celebrate your goodness. There's so often we, we give place to guilt and regret about the past and live in bondage to idols of power and money in an effort to make ourselves feel better. And we do that because we forget. We forget that we are justified by faith alone. We have all of the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need. We give up on ourselves and stop trying to change when we, when we forget we are being sanctified through the empowering presence of your Holy Spirit. We become afraid of, of aging and death when we forget the hope of our future resurrection. We are filled with fears. We don't pray with honesty. We lose our confidence. We try to hide our faults from you and others when we forget our adoption into your family as your dearly loved children. So Father, we pray... Help us, help us to make our home more and more in your love. And may we live more and more in step with the truth of the gospel for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.